Usually, uh, a poem is just written by one person, um, by a lone artist, a Mary Oliver, for example. But uh, some can have thousands of authors, and often there's a great deal of wisdom in crowds. There's imagery and information among a, a throng of people that can summon up truths about our shared humanity that help us to understand that more than separate individuals were part of an interconnected web, something bigger than ourselves. And this reading is excerpted from a poem titled, What You Need to Be Warm. This poem was crowdsourced by Neil Gaiman who's an ambassador to the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. And four years ago, at the onset of winter in 2019, as Syrian families displaced by war were facing their eighth year of sub-freezing temperatures, living in tents and makeshift shelters, Gaiman asked his followers on social media to summon up a thought or a memory of what it meant to them to be warm in a, a cold and often uncaring world. And out of a thousand responses and more than 25,000 words, he distilled these verses. A baked potato on a winter's night to wrap your hands or burn your mouth, a blanket knitted by your mother's cunning fingers or your grandmother's, the tink, tink, tink of iron radiators in an old house, to surface from dreams in bed burrowed beneath blankets and comforters, the change of state from cold to warm is all that matters, and you think just one more minute snuggled here before you face the chill. Places we slept as children, they warm us in memory. We travel to an inside from an outside, to the orange flames of the fireplace or the wood burning in the stove. Wear a scarf. Wear a coat, wear a sweater, wear socks, wear thick gloves. An infant as she sleeps between us. A tumble of dogs, a kindle of cats and kittens. Come inside, you're safe now. A kettle boiling on the stove, your family and friends are here. They smile, cocoa or chocolate, tea or coffee, soup or toddy, what you know you need, a heat exchange. While outside, for some of us, the journey began as we walked away from our grandparents' houses, away from the places we knew as children, changes of state and state and state to stumble across a stony desert or brave the deep waters while food and friends, 
home, a bed, even a blanket became just memories. Sometimes it only takes a stranger in a dark place to hold out a hand-knitted scarf to offer a kind word to say, we have a right to be here, to make us warm in the coldest season. You have a right to be here. It's uh, just at this time of year, late November, early December, as the days shorten, as the temperatures fall, you might just witness one of the marvels of nature, a murmuration of starlings or blackbirds in flight. Now, I confess I have only seen this on the internet, which is easy to do because the videos, the footage are everywhere. But that's probably my fault because if you bother to look, the skies are actually crowded. There are over 200 million blackbirds in North America, and there are 18 varieties right here in New Mexico. Starlings, in fact, are so common that they're often labeled uh, a nuisance bird. People try to get rid of them. They can gather in flocks of tens of thousands. It's often called a murmuration that comes from the Latin murmuratio, which is the sound of water moving, uh, which is what the flocks resemble in flight. These undulating, ever-changing waves forming arches and parabolic eddies, a coordinated spectacle of, of breathtaking aerial acrobatics that, you know, the blue angels uh, could not rival. So, have some of you seen this? Yeah, a, 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 a few. Um, if you if you look on the internet, you know, just just Google murmuration and starlings, and you're going to be amazed, because watching these birds, you sense that all together in their thousands, they are actually one vital organism seemingly guided by this single hive mind that is exploratory and dynamic and alive, as Mary Oliver says, dipping and rising. They float on one stippled star that opens, becomes for a moment fragmented, and then closes again, and you watch and you try, and you simply can't imagine how they do it. How do they do it? Back in the 1930s, uh, there was an ornithologist named Edmund Sellis who postulated that these birds must be sharing some kind of uh, telepathic communication because they, they seem so finely attuned in their aeronautics, so uh, choreographed in their ballet. They must think Collectively, he mused in a book that he curiously titled Thought Transference or What in Birds, a flash out of so many brains, what is happening indeed. Now, I don't, I don't discount the possibility of psychic phenomenon even in birds, 
But scientists today have a different explanation for the bird's behavior that's no less wonderful. Murmurations of starlings are examples of self-organizing systems which occur everywhere in nature, from whirlpools to spiral galaxies, from ant hives and, and bee colonies uh, to uh, neural circuits and economic markets. Wherever uh, there's a coming together of these dozens or hundreds of seemingly autonomous actors and discrete events, uh, there you have it. There's no one up above who's managing it all, no social engineering imposed on it. So, uh, for example, when commuters uh, line up for bus, they, they queue up, and at least in civilized countries, nobody has to to command them, instruct them, tell them what to do or how to do it. They just do it. They form this small civil society without too much pushing or shoving because deep down that's uh, what we are as human beings. That's what we do. We are uh, we're social creatures. We're not exactly like ants, but we're not so different either. You give some ants, uh, a plot of earth, and in a few days, without any blueprint, without any leader, they'll have transformed that into a network of tunnels that if you stretched it out vertically, lengthwise, would rival a skyscraper. And computers using just simple bits of on-off information can also uh, simulate this activity of ants. It can even simulate the, the gyrating patterns of birds in flight, which could mean that the starlings in their synchronous soaring, you know, they may, they may be machine-like at some level. They're, they're just governed by simple mathematical algorithms. Or which, on the contrary, could mean that uh, that little electronic brain inside your PC is at some level lifelike or, or possessed of a low-grade cybernetic intelligence. And at certain levels of complexity, this may be a distinction without a difference. Human societies also appear to be self-organizing, at least at the foundational level that makes for our collective survival. So for example, when Russian tanks rolled across the Ukrainian border two winters ago, uh, most government officials and aid agencies and relief organizations and uh, e even the spy agencies, they were totally unprepared. They were predicting that either there would be no invasion at all, or if there was one, that Kyiv and the rest of the country would fall within a matter of days. What, what no one was expecting was the flood of refugees. No one was ready for that, but grassroots activists like a woman named Yulia, 
who is a PhD candidate in cognitive science living in Germany, they were able to quickly uh, kick up a home-sharing database with thousands of families who were willing to open their doors to those seeking refuge from the shelling. And without waiting for any uh, direction from their leaders or the government, people just started using their own cars to drive women and children to the border. And people who happened to have cafes or outdoor kitchens started cooking for and feeding their neighbors. Those with, with internet connections used social media to organize shelter for others. So people uh, didn't melt down somehow into panic or chaos. Instead, hundreds of seemingly small-scale acts of courage and kindness started to merge into this vast wave or murmuration of mutual aid and resistance that confounded the analysts and the experts and that managed to stop a 40-mile military convoy in its tracks. And here's an interesting fact. Uh, systems that are in perfect balance or equilibrium seldom see these kinds of upswells. You, you have to have a little bit of, of randomness. You have to have a little bit of disruption, a certain level of uh, mayhem even for the self-organization to kick in. And that may be one reason why uh, wars and disaster areas are places where we can observe this phenomenon. For example, on September 11th, in 2001, Manhattan ground to a halt, tunnels leading in and out of the city were shut. The lower half of the island was enveloped in a toxic cloud of pulverized concrete and the ash of human remains. Outside of walking many miles north over the Brooklyn Bridge, which many did, there were very few ways to get out of this maelstrom, yet people did manage to escape, amazingly, an improvised flotilla of sailing yachts and pleasure boats and tugs and ferries just showed up over the next 24 hours to conduct an evacuation rivaling the famed rescue at Dunkirk. In the annals of 9-11, the boat lift was many, one of the many acts of valor that day, but it was also something else. It was a marvel of improvisation and efficiency in the midst of chaos and horror. This is according to Smithsonian Magazine. Jessica Dulong, the author of Saved at the Seawall, stories from the 9-11 boat lift, notes that Nearly half a million people, half a million, were vacated by boat in a spontaneous, completely non-orchestrated effort. Individual mariners working together, individual 
boat crews doing what they could do. It was orderly, but in most cases, she says, it was not organized. Or you could say that it was self-organized, like the flocking of birds. Without any prompting, in the dark and choking streets of New York, citizens stepped up to the occasion. Rebecca Solnit relates how a young man from Pakistan, Usman Farman, fell down and a Hasidic Jewish man stopped and saw the pendant inscribed with Arabic around Farman's neck. And then with a deep Brooklyn accent, he said, brother, if you don't mind, there's a cloud of glass coming at us. Grab my hand and let's get the hell out of here. He was the last person I would ever have thought to help me, said Farman. If it weren't for him, I'd probably have been engulfed in shattered glass and debris. And if you lived through that, you probably remember how unified our nation felt then in the days that immediately followed. At least, at least we did for a brief moment before our leaders in Washington began to uh, distract us with the manufacture of false fears and trumped-up wars. But there was a time when differences of race and religion and creed and politics didn't matter as much because we felt then that we were all Americans. We were all vulnerable. We were all worth protecting. And that's probably how the people of Ukraine felt when the Russian tanks rolled in, like they were uh, the fingers together on one hand with one defiant middle digit raised to you, Russian warship, as if they had each other's backs, as if they were all in it together, part of something bigger. A sense of oneness, solidarity. That may be how starlings feel when they murmurate, although uh, what scientists tell us is that the birds are really only paying attention to those that are close by, only those in their immediate vicinity. And seven seems to be the magic number, not six, not eight. If a blackbird notices just seven of its companions, you know, at fore and aft, above, below, at the wingtips, and, and one in the center, that's seven trying to stay close but not too crowded, just holding the course, then that larger collaboration starts to happen. The whole flock emerges and takes on a life of its own. And this is hopeful news. It's hopeful for those of us living in this world where disruption and disorder are on the rise because we're living now in a twilight era. We're living in a twilight of fossil fuels, a twilight of colonialism, 
an empire, the twilight of an endlessly growing economy, the twilight of American exceptionalism, an hour of lengthening shadows from climate change to racial unrest to threats to our democracy to wars in the Middle East, established institutions and expectations are coming undone, which may be the very moment for a new wave to catch hold. And we don't have to, as individuals, take responsibility for the entire planet. We don't have to, as individuals, decide, you know, the future of our globe. We only have to be aware of the folks who happen to live next door or across town. We need to be aware of the plants and animals who share this, our own watershed or live in our own backyard. We need to be aware of our, our families and our faith communities and the folks who are teachers and service workers who take care of us when we're ill. We only have to watch out for those people and watch out for each other. Fly right, stick together, and stay the course and something good and beautiful could happen. It's almost as if uh, a poem could write itself, if it could be crowdsourced among thousands of, of people without any single author, no single compositor to pull it all together. A migration could start to occur. This, this vast collective movement toward everything that keeps us warm. The baked potato on the winter's night. The places we slept as children. A tumble of puppies and kittens in the kettle boiling on the stove. And seven might not be the precise number for our own species, you know, for human beings. It, it might even be 70 or 17, but whatever it is, it's a doable number. It's not beyond reach. This is not fantasy or wishful thinking. It's not even prayer. It's science. It's real. It's possible. So the sun may be setting early. The chill is gathering, but don't give up and don't give in. Instead, go outside. Look upward. You might chance to see a uh, murmuration forming, even and especially at a time like this. <laughs>